have a question for you. What do you think about when you hear the phrase hard-hearted? What comes to mind? I mean, do you think about those who are cold or calloused, maybe closed off or obstinate? Do you think about those who are blind, those who are deaf, those who are stone-hearted, those who are dead towards something? Now, try to picture someone in your mind. Like, who do you think about? Someone specifically. Who do you think about when you hear the word hard-hearted? You think about a militant atheist or Ebenezer Scrooge? Or do you think about a coworker or a, a neighbor or a relative or a friend? What about in the Bible? When you think about hard-hearted, who comes to mind? I mean, Pharaoh ought to be up there on the list, right? You know? Then the Israelites, uh, rulers, kings, people like Nebuchadnezzar. Those people in Jesus' day, like the Pharisees or, or the crowd that just can't seem to figure it out. They're false teachers that are in and among and around. They're, they're hard-hearted. But when you think about people in the Bible who are hard-hearted, do you think about the disciples? Do you think about those warnings that are given time and time and time and time again to, to people who profess to be believers of Christ, not to harden their hearts in the deceitfulness of sin? You think about them. You think about yourself. Hard-heartedness is a condition of fallen humanity. It's a condition leaving us unable to acknowledge the truth of God, either from our spiritual rebellion against Him or just our, our, our plain moral insensitivity. Everyone, from the worst of the worst, from that, that antagonistic, hostile, bird-flipping God-hater to those that are just kind of indifferent or apathetic or even make professions but, and seem to obey outwardly, everyone is affected by hard-heartedness. It is an epidemic of global proportions. No one is immune to it. No one is free from it. It's a curse. It's an affliction that plagues us all. So what can overcome it? That's ultimately why we're here, right? Because we realize, at least in part, that we need to overcome it. What we'll see from, from our passage today, Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56, is that Jesus' true identity can overcome the nature of man's heart by the abundance of His grace. So let's look at the passage. Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 56. It's page 842 in the Bibles there in the chairs. I encourage you to read along as I read. Starting in verse 45. Immediately he, Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got in the boat with them, and the wind ceased. 
and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And whenever he came in villages, cities, and countryside, they laid their sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. First, this passage gives us a display of Jesus' true identity. Now, last week we looked at that that very familiar passage of Jesus feeding that 5,000 plus Right? And, and after Jesus had performed this miracle and fed these people from, from such a small amount, from five loaves and two small fish, the people begin to recognize, they begin to identify, hey, this is the prophet who has come into the world. They, they remembered God's promise from Deuteronomy 18 and they were beginning to catch on to this. Hey, this is Jesus. And so they wanted to take him as their Messiah and make him be their king by force. Well, Jesus knows what's going on, and it's in response to that potential coup that we pick up there in verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat before him uh, and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Jesus knows that the people are talking about a revolution. Well, you know, he decided to go ahead and break that up before they ever had a chance to form. And so he knows that his disciples are are interested and kind of have that same misperception themselves. And so he wants to get them out of there before he has to go and turn the hose on the crowd. Right. And so he's like, you know, I've got one zealot in the boat already. And Peter, I mean, he's impetuous. He wants to pull out a sword and chop off somebody's ear at any moment. So I've got to get them out of here and then I'll take care of the crowd. And so he gets rid of them, he goes, you know, and he, he gets out his hose or whatever, breaks up the riot, whatever it looks like. Now, I would have liked to have seen how Jesus went about doing this. I mean, I know he's the son of God and all, but it's like there's at least 5,000. It could be as many as 25,000 people there. And they're all beginning to recognize that Jesus is the answer to this Old Testament scripture. They're all wanting freedom from Rome, freedom from Herod. And, and so, you know, I just, I'm curious as to what he said, what he did to get them you know, to, to just disperse, right? I mean, it was getting late. Did he lay, lay them down for a nap and, and read a bedtime story to him? Um, did he say, hey, you know, why don't you guys, you know, the show's over. Tell you what, come back here tomorrow at 9 o'clock, okay? Just come back tomorrow, and as soon as they split, then he just, he bolted out of there. You know, I, I don't know. I would have liked to have seen it. But what he does next, I just find fascinating, right? He... His disciples have shipped out this crowd that has been pestering him for chapters now, for years now. They finally disperse and Jesus is alone, right? Finally, I can breathe a little bit, you know, like, I mean, just want to camp out, go to sleep. I don't know, something. But what he does is he prays. This is significant because, I mean, this is Jesus. This is who we've seen has the authority to heal and to teach and to cast out demons and to, and to calm storms and to cause a little girl to raise from the dead. This is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And He's there and He's praying. The hours that He has finally free to Himself, He uses in communion with God. And this is important for us. Because in this, we see that Jesus is fully man who is fully dependent upon God. 
This is the second of three times in which Mark specifically mentions that Jesus was praying. The first was back in chapter 1. And we saw what had happened there was Jesus went into the synagogue, kind of like his first big experience there, and he's, he's teaching with authority, leaving everybody amazed. This, this guy with a demon shows up, he casts out that demon, then he goes over to Peter's house for, for lunch or whatever, and, and, uh, he heals Peter's mother-in-law, and then he goes out and he prays by himself before he goes to do that whole thing over again. Teaching, casting out demons and healing. Sandwiched in between this, this teaching and all these healings is Jesus' prayer. Jesus seeking God in the midst of that to keep His heart and His, his motives pure. Um, you've got this count here. You know, in, in both situations, you've got these crowds that are gathered around. They have these messianic hopes about Jesus. They're false ones. They're political ones. They don't, they don't really catch it, but there they are. And Jesus could have gone along with that. <laughs> I mean, here in this time, he's, it's, he's got this huge crowd around him. It would have been so much easier for him to just go along and just be made their king. But he doesn't do it. And sandwiched in between this miraculous feeding of the 5,000 plus and Jesus walking on water is there Jesus praying. The third time is much later. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Sandwiched between the Last Supper and the cross. In each of these times, Jesus isn't praying to recharge his miracle mojo, right? He doesn't just need to like kind of be filled up with an extra power boost. Jesus is there because he's seeking God's will, not his own. He's praying not to provide this big long litany of, of wishes before God so that he can bend God's will to his own. Say, God, why don't you just give me this? I really need this. And then God kind of changes his mind, right? No, Jesus is there so that his Focus, his intention, his will, his desires, his drive would be the same as that of God. He seeks communion with God. He seeks God so that he might be able to resist the temptations, the temptations to, to just kind of exalt himself in his power, in his glory, in his authority, to exalt himself as king over these people because that's what they want. And he could have all the pleasures of this world if only he would go along with them. And Jesus does that just to make sure that he's worshiping God as God would have him to. And Jesus is, is more than a miracle worker. He's more than a political savior. Jesus is a fully human, a, a man fully dependent upon God, a man who is willing to lay down his life and accept that cup of wrath from God for sin. Guys, this is huge because it not only reveals that Jesus is human, but it reveals that Jesus is human in a way that you and I cannot be. That he's perfectly obedient to God's law. It's not just enough for, for his passive obedience to take place, for Jesus to just go to the cross and die. That's, that's Jesus' passive obedience. No, Jesus had to fulfill the law perfectly to obey every letter of the law. That's his active obedience. And he does this not just in conforming to certain rules, but living his life completely devoted to God. His life is an expression of the worship that God demands of all of us, that we cannot do. So Jesus came as a man, just like us, but was able to do that what you and I are not able to do, to live a perfectly obedient life. And that makes him the perfect sacrifice, the perfect substitute for sin, because he's just like you and me in every way. 
but yet able to do what you and I could never do. To obey God's law. To worship Him with all our hearts. To seek His face rather than our own. We can learn a lot about Jesus from from His prayer. Jesus doesn't pray to change God's mind like we so often do. He doesn't come to the Father like, like God is some Santa Claus in the sky. And if we just sit on His lap and we put in our request and we try to be good people, then God will give us the present that we want. Right? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't do any of that. Jesus prays that His will would be conformed to the Father's will. Not try to bend God's will to mine. Jesus prays for the strength to overcome temptation. Jesus prays that his desires would be of God and not of the world. He prays that he, because he knows that God has the power, that it's not in humanity, no matter how many people are willing to come around you. And Jesus prays as worship to God. This is why, um, I should ask the question, is this why you pray? Is this what your prayer looks like? Or do you, you, are your prayers just complaints or long wish lists to God? Do you pray at all? Or do you seek to live an obedient life with the strength and, and, and will that you muster up yourselves? You know, seeing Jesus pray may make you ask the question. You, you may be thinking about this. Well, why does Jesus even pray at all? I mean, isn't Jesus God? Here? I mean, why, why does he need to pray? Well, I think there's, there's a few different things that this, this question can answer. And I'll just try to be brief. I mean, one, I think that this is textual evidence for the Trinity. Right? I mean, there are some people out there. You can watch them on TBN. Uh, you can read about them in church history. Um, that, that believe that God changed modes. They're modalists. They're Sibelians. They're oneness Pentecostals. These, these kind of people that, that believe that God was at one time the Father, then He became the Son, and then He became the Spirit. Right? That, so they're holding to God being one, but they're denying that God exists in three persons, though being completely one. Right? Well, if that's the case, then who is Jesus praying to? Himself? Seriously. But more importantly, again, Jesus' sacrifice for sin not only required that Jesus die on the cross, but that he live perfectly to obey the law. And so in doing that, we see that Jesus is fully human like you and me, but he did what we could not, fully obey the the law. And Jesus lived his life in order to be that perfect sacrifice for us. His dependence upon God through prayer highlights His complete humanity. But that's not all this passage shows us about Jesus' identity, Jesus' nature. In verses 48 through 51, Jesus' identity is that He is fully God, revealing Himself to man. Jesus has been praying for hours and hours and hours. And then he goes and he sees his disciples getting nowhere out there on the sea. And so Jesus decides to walk out there to them in the middle of this water, in the middle of this lake. Let's pick up in verse 48. It says, in about the fourth watch of the night, that's between 3 and 6 a.m. All right, they left sometime around 6 p.m. And so they've been out there for nine hours, 10 hours, 12 hours. And he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when, they saw, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. 
But immediately he spoke to them and he said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. You know, some time ago I talked about, you know, Mark is basically, the gospel of Mark is the action hero gospel. Right? It's the comic book version of the Gospels. Mark doesn't want to write a thousand pages filled with words with no illustration just telling you that Jesus is the Son of God. He wants to show you. He wants to paint you a picture. And so he would rather set up these events so that you can see them with all clarity clarity, and you can read bang, pow, zap, and then you can put two and two together and see, yeah, Jesus is the Son of God. That's what he wants you to do. Right? And so... What we, and I don't know about you, but, but nothing says God to me like walking on water, right? I mean, have you ever tried? I, I tried as a kid, you know, I fill up my bathtub and try to step in there, fell on my face, it didn't really work. <laughs> tried to, you know, step out of a boat, didn't matter how much I prayed, I always sunk, you know. I still do, you know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it doesn't really matter. I mean, but, but that's the kind of thing. I mean, like, Jesus did it. I mean, he's, he's out there, he's walking on the water, it's unbelievable. <clears throat> Excuse me. I mean, this event, like, just like calming the storm, just like feeding those 5,000, shows that Jesus has the authority over nature, right? Authority that God alone has. But there's even more than just the act, the mere act of walking on the water. Jesus did this in order to reveal his glory to his disciples. Mark is very intentional about his word choice here. He says that, that Jesus meant to pass by the disciples. Now we need to think about this for a minute. Okay, it says that Jesus went walking out to his disciples only to pass by them. That was his intention. I'm going to walk out to you in order to pass by you. Now why does anyone do that? Right? Why would I say, yeah, I want to get... Uh, there's Josh. I'm going to walk right on past. Why would I do that? I do that so that Josh will look at me, right? So that he'll notice me, so that he'll see me, right? Kind of give him a little, how's it going, you know? You know, all my glory, reveal, you know, <laughs> what little there is. I mean, that's what, that's why you do it, right? That's why you walk out and go to pass by somebody is so that they will see you. Right? So that they will notice you. The purpose in him doing that is so... <laughs> I'm going to dim the lights in here. I shouldn't see Jim. Yeah. <laughs> he does that so, that so that his disciples will see them. But that pass by language is really important. Because you see this come out repeatedly in the Old Testament. You know, just like last time when we looked at the feeding of the 5,000, there were all these allusions and echoes from the Old Testament. It's the same thing here. Mark's, Mark's basically, you know, in Matthew and John's account, I mean, Jesus basically he walks out there to him, and then he gets in the boat, and that's it, right? I mean, there's that whole thing with Peter kind of wanting to walk on the water or whatever. But, uh, but Mark adds this whole wanting to pass by. Pass by them in the same way that God did Moses on the Mount Sinai in, in, ex, in Exodus 33 and 34, or the way that God passed by Elijah on Mount Horeb in 1 Kings 19. 
what we see in the Old Testament is that God passes by his people, his chosen ones, his anointed ones, in order to reveal himself so that they might know his compassion, so that they might know him. His true identity is revealed to them as he passes by them. That's how he discloses himself in very tangible and visible ways. But Jesus passing by his disciples is even more closely connected to another passage. Job chapter 9, verses 8 and 11. It says that God alone stretches out the heavens and tramples on the sea. Behold, He passes by me, and I see Him not. He goes by, but I do not perceive Him. Just like Job, the disciples couldn't grasp who Jesus was, even though He passed by. The Creator of the universe, who had stretched out the heavens, had just passed by them on the sea, trampling on the sea, and they couldn't understand. They couldn't perceive it. This is a declaration of Jesus' divinity. And if that's not enough, Mark is not done. Jesus' response to his frightened disciples is, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. These words of comfort have been spoken repeatedly by God to his people throughout generations. The illusions are so thick, so plentiful, I can't even begin to, to talk about them. Right? There's so many of them. One of them, my son Gabe quotes every single night, God, when I'm scared, I will believe and trust in you, God. Psalm 56.3 Jesus is taking God's words of comfort to his people and applying them. But even more than that, Jesus is taking on God's name. He says, take heart, it is I. Literally, I am. Do not be afraid. He's saying Yahweh. He's saying the name of God. The name that God gave to Moses when Moses was at the burning bush and, that, and asked, who am I to tell them who sent me? God says, I am who I am. Here Jesus is saying, listen, it's I, I am. Take heart. The name of God's is mine. Do not be afraid. And then he gets into the boat. And once again, he calms the wind. What we see here is that Jesus reveals his true identity by taking on God's nature, by taking on God's power, by taking on God's character, by taking on God's words of comfort, and by taking on God's very name. This is huge. In that we see God's glory. We don't just read about it. We see it. This passage tells us who Jesus is, who is. What his true identity is. That he is both a man fully dependent upon God and God who came to reveal his glory to man. So this is Jesus' true identity. An identity that second can, be, can overcome the nature of man's heart. Now, I'm not going to focus on the, the, the crowd in this situation. We've seen them before. They don't really play a major role uh, in this account. I just want to remind you of the fact that, that we have seen time and time again that the crowd has already come to their own conclusions about Jesus. They've all decided to follow him basically for the wrong reasons, either because he's entertaining or because he's able to heal them 
or because he teaches with some kind of authority, not like the scribes, but they can't figure out what it is, or they want to make him their political hero, or, I mean, you name it, but they're following him for the wrong reasons. No, we actually get a better picture of man's heart, not by looking at the crowd, the confused, the dis, you know, the, 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 the confused and and just kind of like um, ignorant crowd, but we actually see it better when we look at the disciples, when we look at their hearts, their responses. And what we learn about the nature of man, the nature of man's heart from them, is that our wills will naturally conform outwardly, and that our minds naturally drift to the wrong conclusions, and that our hearts are naturally hardened. We see in verse 45 through 48 that the disciples, they do obey outwardly. All right? They do get in the boat. I mean, here they are. They've just seen the miracles too. They're hearing all this buzz about Jesus being the prophet. They've been saying that for a year now. And so they're just kind of like ready to go. You know, I mean, Peter, he's got out his sword again. He's ready to go. And, and, but Jesus says, get in the boat. And they do get in the boat. They do conform outwardly. They go ahead and they're shipped off. They, they're sent out, right? They don't get caught up in all of that. But we have to remember, the disciples still don't know for sure who Jesus is. Alright? They're still at war with one another for position. They're still seeking the pride and the, the glory of man. They still assume that they would never fall or to deny Jesus. And they still fail to recognize that they need Jesus to die for them on the cross. And so, yes, their wills conformed outwardly to Jesus' commands, but it happens apart from knowledge. It happens apart from the heart's true affection, right? They're, they're out there, they're doing these things in order to get from Him what they want. They still don't recognize who He is, why He came, and what it means to follow Him. They're, they're basically living under the worldly principle that if I do this, then I will get that, Right? I'm going to comply to these wishes so that I can get this. But they're still defining what this is and how that comes about. They're obeying out of their own strength, out of their own foolish understanding. They're trying to earn their position before Jesus. They are trying to merit His favor. They are trying to earn their salvation through their own good works. This is huge because we have this natural tendency we all do it. It's the performance drive, right? If I do this, then I will get that. And so I will do this in order to get that, because that is what I really want. The problem is, what is that? To avoid punishment? To receive benefits and blessing from something? Or to take joy in whatever that is? They weren't there because they loved God. They, or they weren't there because they loved Jesus. They were there because they thought that Jesus could give them what they really wanted, which was political freedom, which was an exalted position, right? Where they could glorify themselves before men. They didn't see their need of Him. And that's not enough for God. It's not enough for us to just blindly conform ourselves outwardly to a set of rules. Okay? God is not pleased with that. God is only pleased when our hearts and our minds are fully engaged, fully enraptured with Him. God demands perfect obedience, right? And this is not just obeying the letter of the law. This is me loving God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, and all my strength. And that is something that we can't do. You and I, we know that we failed in this. 
Even now, maybe even sitting here today, as we sang songs, you were just you were mumbling words that were up on a screen. And all the while, your hearts and your minds were far from Him. God's not pleased with that. That gains us nothing but exhaustion if we're trying to obey God outwardly by our own strength while our minds and while our hearts are disengaged. We also see in the disciples, aside from this tendency to naturally conform outwardly, we see this tendency that our minds naturally drift to the wrong conclusions. I mean, look again at verses 48 through 50. And when Jesus saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, and about the fourth hour of uh, fourth watch of the night, he, he came to them and, and walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. For they all saw him and were terrified. Now these guys have been with Jesus for over a year. Alright? Think about how many sermons, how many teachings they've heard. Think about how many times they've seen him heal people. How many demons he cast out. We know that it's at least, you know, 2,000 plus, right? I mean, that happened one time. I mean, think of all this that has happened. They were in that boat before, crying like scared little girls, afraid they were going to drown until Jesus calmed the storm. They were all there. They all saw it. Three of them got to go in and witness Jesus cause a little girl to rise from the dead. They've seen these things over and over and over again. And so when they see Jesus out there walking on the sea, they're like, look at that, it's Jesus, the Son of God, right? Nope. (laughs) It's a ghost. You know, they must have got the sci-fi channel back then. I don't know. You know, I mean, instead of saying, hey, look, it's Jesus, the Son of God, they're like, no, it's Gozer the Gozerian. That was a Ghostbusters reference, by the way. Yeah, got it, got it, yeah, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, once again, they're out there on this boat, the same boat that they've been on before, utterly terrified, utterly afraid. They're crying out like sissies, you know, just uh, so afraid of what's going on because they can't possibly comprehend Jesus' true identity. They're standing there, clinging to one another, sobbing. Their robes are wet, not because of the waves, because, but because they just, they can't possibly wrap their minds around the fact that Jesus truly is the Son of God. That He has this power. He can do this because of who He is. They don't get it. They couldn't comprehend His true identity. Even though he had done it time and time and time and time and time again. And even used them to teach and to do miracles with his power through them. This is unbelievable. By the way, this is, I think, evidence for the truthfulness of this account. I mean, some people just question every miracle. You know, it can't possibly happen. Jesus couldn't possibly walk on water. There must have been a land bridge, right? Jesus must have been walking on a land bridge. You know, natural piece of land that kind of comes up. The water just kind of skimmed across the top. And so Jesus is walking out there and it kind of looks like he's walking across. You know, people come to those conclusions. The funny thing about that, though, is that Four, if not seven, of the disciples were fishermen who made their living off of that same body of water that is not that big. And so you'd think that these fishermen would know, indeed, if there was a land bridge. But even more than that, some people say that it's a lie. 
This didn't really happen. This is a myth. They're building up this idea of Jesus to be the Son of God when He's not really. I'm like, really? They're lying about it? Then why would you portray yourself this way? Seriously. Why would you, why would you humiliate yourself and say, you know what, I was a scared little girl who wet myself when I saw Jesus walking on the water. If I'm going to embellish, if I'm going to tell a lie, what I'm going to do is I, I'm going to bring myself into it, right? I mean, seriously. Saw Jesus out there walking on the water. I was like, wow, that is so rad. I started kicking some tunes, and I went out and did a, a, a whole dance party out there on the water. Right? That's the way I'm going to present it. Not like this. Not like making myself into a fool. And so, it, it, again, this, the fact that they're willing to humiliate themselves and say, you know what, I'm hard-hearted, I didn't get this, is evidence for the truthfulness of this claim. His disciples were afraid because they did not recognize who he was and they did not rest in their relationship with him. Their natural minds drifted towards the wrong conclusions. You know, and so do we. Either we say this is a lie or Jesus walked across the land bridge or that Jesus must be some sort of ghost, some sort of apparition. He can be anything, but he can't be God. Right? Our natural minds doubt God. They doubt truth. They doubt His Word. They doubt who Jesus is. And they doubt our relationship with Him. And when we doubt, we will always drift to the wrong conclusions. Now you might be thinking, okay, I, I think you're being a little hard on them, Chet. I mean, keep in, keep in mind, they did obey, right? They have been out there on this lake fighting against the wind for at least nine hours in this boat. That seems dedicated to me. I mean, perhaps they were just exhausted when they saw Jesus. You know, we all get a little kind of weird when we're tired. Or maybe they were dehydrated, right? So they're kind of delusional, kind of looking cross-eyed. You know, I don't know. And I would say, yeah, maybe that's the case, except for if we continue to read. Let's pick up again in verse 50. For they all saw him and they were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and he said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Not only was their obedience and their minds just kind of out of whack, but their hearts were naturally hardened towards the truth. They were dull to it. They were blind from it. They couldn't understand. They couldn't grasp. They couldn't comprehend. Once again, they are utterly astounded by Jesus. I mean, how many times has this happened? But, they, but the loaves didn't really help. Jesus walking on water didn't really help. Their hearts were still hardened. This hardening is a past state, right? They began with hardened hearts, and it has a continuing effect, all right? That's the, what the Greek word is trying to convey. It's perfect tense, right? So it's, it's past tense. They began with hardened hearts with continuing effect, that they naturally hardened their hearts. And so every time Jesus taught or healed or performed miracles or raised someone from the dead or caused the storm to cease or fed thousands of people, or when he even walks on water. Now, there might have been that moment, right, where their, their hearts suddenly became soft, and as they, as they stood there, utterly astounded and amazed by all what Jesus did, they're, they're just kind of blown away, and their hearts are just becoming warm to it. But then instantly, they turn back around, and their hearts return to that original state, that state of hardness. 
they are hardened once again. And this hardness will continue for the disciples over and over again. You move from here and you continue on through Mark. And what you'll see is that, that Mark heals this little girl, the Syrophoenician girl. He then, he then heals a deaf man. And then he feeds another 4,000 people. And yet their hearts are still hard. And you continue on. Jesus has now predicted his death and resurrection three different times. He's been nailed to the cross. And reports have now come back from people that Jesus' tomb was empty. That he has been raised. And it says in Mark chapter 16 verse 14 that Jesus will rebuke the leaven once again because of their unbelief and hardness of heart. Because they had not believed those who had saw him and said that he had risen. I mean, look how hard their hearts are. These are eyewitnesses of all that Jesus said and did, and they still are hardening their hearts against it. The natural tendency in all mankind is to harden our hearts against Jesus. We are born with it, and we deal with it throughout our lives. By way of illustration, our, our hearts are like blocks of ice, right? And if you could set, and it's not only that, but we're blocks of ice that are existing in sub-zero environments. The world is just cold, right? Cold towards Jesus. And so when, when things like these miracles come about, there's like this light that's put on that. And it begins to warm and it begins to melt. But as soon as that light is removed, as soon as that thing is over, then it returns back to its original state. It's still hard. It's still frozen. It's still cold again. But it's not just due to the fact that we're in sub-zero environments because the world is so cold towards Jesus. There's also something inside that water that wants to make ice stay ice. It acts as a catalyst to refreeze our hearts. It's called the flesh and it's at war within us. It wants to lead us away from the truth about Jesus. And we can either walk in the Spirit or we can walk in the flesh. And it's always that way. And if we want to walk by the Spirit, then we will not gratify the desires of the flesh that come naturally from within. And so we shouldn't be surprised if people question this account. If the eyewitnesses have hardened their hearts against it, then so will we. Our natural wills, our natural minds, our natural hearts always bend away from Jesus, not towards Him. So what hope do we have? Jesus' true identity can overcome the nature of man's heart, third, by the abundance of His grace. Look with me again at verses 53 through 56. It says, When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And they moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And whenever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Now, I originally struggled with, okay, how does this connect with verses 45 through 52? I mean, is Mark just giving his news report? You know, this was the event that happened. Jesus walked on water. Now that's done. Now let's move on. We're kind of continuing. This is the next story. I don't think so. What we see is that Mark is trying to connect these two pretty intimately. In location, as far as where they are, in time. He says that 
when they crossed over and when they got out of the boat. He's wanting it not to be two separate stories, so don't get thrown off by the little subtitle there in your Bible. That's not inspired, right? That wasn't originally there. That's not a divide. It continues on. Mark's story is one story that goes from verse 45 through 56. It doesn't break at 52 and then pick up with something else. It is all together one story. And so why does he make it one story? Well, that's the real big question. Right? Why would he bring these things together? Why is that so important? Is he saying that the crowds got what the disciples didn't? Certainly not. There's got to be something else. Mark connects these so that we will see that despite their hard-heartedness, Jesus doesn't give up on his disciples. Think about it. He should have got out of that boat and said, you stay here. Forget you, it's over. How many times are you going to reject? How many times are you going to deny me? But he does it. He continues to lavish his grace upon them over and over and over again, despite their hardness of heart, despite the number of times that they have seen miracle after miracle after miracle and heard him teach and been able to be used by him. Jesus continues to show his mercy and his grace towards them. He doesn't want them to be melted from blocks of ice to lukewarm water. He wants them to be steamed. Despite being blown off course, they go ahead and they land there in Gennesaret, which is west of Bethsaida. And again, these people immediately recognize Jesus and they run throughout the region. They're bringing everybody who's sick. They're bringing them to wherever Jesus is. And so as Jesus is going throughout the countryside from village to city to village to city and, and, and continuing to teach and heal and cast out demons, you know, like they just bring everybody. And what we see now is that, that Jesus is just healing right and left, just boom, 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 over and over and over again. He's just healing everyone. He's allowing the crowd to continue in their confusion and ignorance, though, of his true identity. What we don't see here is a specific call to faith. The last time we saw someone go and, and touch Jesus' garment, what happened? You had this huge crowd that was thronging around Jesus. Everybody was groping, trying to touch him, thinking to themselves, if only I touch him, then I can be healed. But there was only one woman who touched him was healed. And Jesus turned around and he called her out. And he called her to faith. One woman healed out of many who had crowded around doing that same thing. But now it's different. Now everybody is crowding around. Everybody's throwing you around. Everybody's touching him. And now all of a sudden they're healed over and over and over and over again. But yet he's not explicitly calling anyone to faith. What's the difference? Did Mark just leave that out intentionally? Or was, was there something else there? Again, you know, when, he's healing, when he healed that woman, right? He's walking through the crowd. They're reaching for him. She touches his garment, she's healed, and immediately he stops and he says, he recognizes the power has gone out of him. And he calls her out. He calls her to faith. But here, it makes no mention of power going out of him. Right? Did, did that prayer really, really increase his miracle mojo so that now he's just, he doesn't get worn out? You know, the power doesn't go out of him? Or is there something more? Well, I think there is. I think that what you see here is there's a difference between Jesus' common grace towards the crowd and his special grace to his disciples. And this healing is ultimately for their benefit, not the benefit of the crowd. 
Yeah, the crowd gets to receive the oohs and awes of seeing these things happen. Yes, the crowd gets to be healed of sickness, disease, and infirmities, whatever it might be. Demons cast out of them. But ultimately, they're not called to faith. This is about the disciples. This is about answering that issue of their hardness of heart in verse 52. The crescendo of this account is now being answered by the resolution, which is like Jesus is not giving up on them. He says, listen, I called you to be my disciples. I called you to follow me. I gave you my power to teach. I gave you my power to heal. You came back excited, yes, but you still don't get it. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to heal five, I'm going to feed 5,000. Will that be enough for you to recognize who I truly am? No, it's not. Well, how about this? How about I just go ahead and I walk on water? Right? And then I'll tell you all these Old Testament illusions for you to get the fact that I am God. Do you still not get it? Well, here, maybe this is enough. What if I heal this guy? What if I heal that guy? What if I heal this guy? What if I heal that guy? Boom, 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 over and over and over again. He does it so that they would see his true identity. He doesn't give up on them. He continues over and over and over again. And yes, the crowd is able to benefit from that somewhat, but not the way the disciples were. They are left with no excuse. They left unable to not see the fact that Jesus is God. This is the purpose. This is why Mark connects it. He wants us to see that Jesus is overwhelming them. Heart, mind, soul, and strength with the reality of who He is. He's not going to stop. He's not going to let go of them. He's doing this to overcome their hardness of heart. He's doing this to give them faith. By healing these people, He's working towards melting the heart of the crowd, yes. But again, Jesus doesn't want lukewarm water. Jesus is calling His true disciples to be steam. Right? Steam that can heat up these sub-zero temperatures of the world. Steam that can drive locomotives. Steam that can cause objects to lift into flight. Steam that can sterilize things that are contaminated by the hardness of heart, by unbelief. That is what Jesus is calling them to. And that is why Jesus is healing over and over and over again. He's lavishing His grace upon them. He's applying the hot white heat of His true identity to their icy hearts so that they would see, they would know, they would confess that Jesus is the Son of God who came into this world to live a life that you and I cannot live and die, to lay it down, only to rise again, so that those who repent and believe in their sins might now no longer live for themselves, but for Him who died and was raised. That's what He's calling them to. Those whom God calls, He draws by His grace. He lavishes His kindness on them. Not materially, not so that they can have a nice life here, but so that they can see, they can have an abundance of opportunities to recognize who He is and who they are in light of Him. And He still continues to pour on the grace over and over and over again so that He changes their hearts so that they can see transformation happening inwardly and outwardly and over and over and over again. Abundance. He's not giving up. And so if you are His, if you've been called to follow Christ, then take great comfort in this. He is not giving up on you. 
It doesn't matter how dark or how, how callous or how cold you, you feel or how much afraid and overcome you are by the depth and of your sin. Jesus is at work in you and He will continue to pound this home over and over and over again until you rest and take comfort and hope and glory in the fact that Jesus is the Son of God who died for you. Nothing can get rid of that. Nothing can take that away. By His grace, we pray that He will do this in our lives. That as we stand affirming who He is and the nature of our true hearts, that we are hard, that we are sinful, that we are cold towards Him, He will continue to persistently love us and care for us and reveal Himself to us so that we are changed over and over and over again so that we might be like Him. Guys, open your eyes to the fact that God is at work all around you. He is. God is at life in the work, at work in the lives of the people just sitting here in this room, and I know it. Take comfort in that, even though your heart is cold now. Even though your heart is hard. Take great hope. Take great comfort. See it. And give Him glory. As we entrust our souls to God who can walk on water, seeking to know Him by His Word and to follow Him, not just outwardly, not just in blind conformity, but with all our hearts, with all our souls, with all our minds, and with all our strength. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You that You do not give up on us. God, we thank you that, that even though we are so cold and we're so prone to wonder and, and our minds are disengaged, our wills are bent towards other things, that our affections are stirred for things that are less than you, you continue to speak truth to us. You continue to apply your word to us. You give us great hope through your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would see that. I pray that we would be deeply affected by that. I pray that, that, that our minds would be, be open, that our hearts would be changed, that you would rip out our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. And that we might love you more than anything else. God, we thank you for your love for us that you have shown through your Son in whose mighty name we pray. Amen.